Well, good morning, church. I'll add my welcome to all the ones that you already had this morning. Uh, glad that you're here. Uh, whether you are in person, uh, whether you're joining us online, we're glad you can be with us. And part of me actually feels like saying something along the lines of, we, we now return you to your regularly scheduled sermon series. Because it's been a while. It's, uh, we've taken a few weeks break. Uh, first, we had the missions festival, so we had... Uh, Paul come and, and uh, give a special number. Last week was Thanksgiving. We had some baptisms and, and took a break for that. But now we are back. Uh, and I would invite you to join me uh, in turning to our passage this morning in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. And as you're turning there, I just again want to encourage you to be try to be reading through the book of 1 Thessalonians maybe once or twice a week just as we continue looking at it on this series that we're going through. And if you've been doing that, good chance you have come across these words uh, that we'll be studying this morning. You can follow along with me as we look at, this is really Paul's prayer uh, for this church. Again, found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. And he says this, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Let's pray. Lord, just be with us in our time together. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would just be with us to, to open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts uh, to this truth that you would have us learn this morning. Not just learn, but live. I uh, pray that we would live out what, what you are pointing out to us through your, your, your holy word this morning. We invite you to be with us, Lord, in, in a very special way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just kind of ask a question. You don't have to put up your hand or anything like that, but have you ever heard the term good to great? Um, chances are many of you have, because right around the year 2001, a guy named Jim Collins he released a best-selling book. It was just one of those huge books at the time. Many described it as a game changer, you know, paradigm shift in the world of business. And his book was called Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap. And again, it caught on. People lost their minds. There was, uh, there was for a while, there's good to gate everything. I mean, good to great cupcake mix. It was, it was crazy. And not to be left out, even the church sort of jumped with both feet onto the good to great bandwagon. Um, there were books came out called Good to Great in God's Eyes. And then there was Transforming Churches, Bringing Out the Good to Get Great. And there's another book called Breakout Churches, Going from Good to Great, and Missional Leadership, Good to Great Churches, and all that stuff. And then, you know, there's the spinoffs, there's the Good to Great Pastor, and then there's Good to Great Families, and Good to Great for Kids, and for Teens, and Good to Great Church Planting Man. It, was, it, just, it just went on like that. And all those books, you know, came out with their own, you know, 10 principles or 7 practices or 4 essentials that 
promised to take any church sort of from good to great. But something that was kind of lost in all of that frenzy of, you know, churches trying to get to greatness was the fact that long before Jim Collins ever, you know, wrote or any of those other authors came along to wrote their buzzwords and their principles for greatness, the Apostle Paul had already been telling churches how to be great for nearly 2,000 years. And one of the places that he does that is, is, is actually in our passage this morning. In fact, this is, this is Paul's prayer for the church. This is Paul's deepest heart desire for these people. He's like, this is what I want to see God doing in you. And as you look at Paul's words here, they kind of break down to some very sort of simple things that I think all sort of great churches have in common. And here he's sort of keeping score. I'm going to have six of them for you this morning. And they're all sort of gleaned out of this passage, again, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. And the first thing we see is that a truly great church is a church that knows thankfulness and joy. He says in verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Joy. Now, if you were to ask someone why they go to any sort of particular church, you might get lots of different answers. So you might say, people, I like the preaching there. That, that, that would be good, <laughs> especially in our church. Um, I like the worship, you know, or they have good programs for my kids. They might even say, well, you know what, I grew up in that church, and they've just sort of always gone there. But how many people do you think would answer that question? Why do you go to church? How many would say, that church just brings me joy? Probably not too many. And yet Paul's saying here that joy is one of the reasons people should be going to church. But that may come as a surprise to a lot of people, especially people outside the church. Because you know what? Joy is the last thing that many people think of when they think about church. You know, if you were to ask, just stop people walking by our church on the street and say, what are some words that describe church in your mind? I'm not sure joy would crack the top 10, but probably words like stuffy, solemn, ritualistic, even boring, maybe a little guilt-inducing. That's probably more the answers that they would have. So, you know, it's no wonder when you invite a friend to church, you often see panic, you know, kind of come across their face. But again, that's not how church should be. Church should be a celebration. There should be smiles. There should be laughter. Paul says there should be joy in our midst when we are gathered together. And you know, I understand that not all of us are sort of jump up and down and dance in the aisles kind of people, but all of us should have ways that we are expressing joy in our lives because we have so much joy available to us in Christ. We have joy in our forgiveness, joy as we take hold of our hope, joy in the freedom we have in Christ, joy in fellowship with one another, joy just from our relationship with Jesus. And churches should be places where that joy lives. So when someone asks you, why do you go to your church? Tell them, I love it there. That, my church brings me joy. And then just look at the shock on their face when you say it. But it shouldn't be shocking because joyfulness is something that great churches should have. Something great churches do. And something else that great churches should do is they should also faithfully be praying. 
As Paul says, continuing in verse 10, he says, as we pray most earnestly, night and day. And I, I don't know why, I just love that earnestly when it comes to this word. Earnestly is a good word. It's like salt of the earth kind of word. It actually reminds me of that parable that Jesus tells about the persistent window when he, he was telling it, talking to his disciples. And Luke 18 says he taught it so that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. That's a picture of earnest prayer, what Paul's talking about here. I mean, Paul says he does it night and day, praying for this church. And I would be hard-pressed to overstate the importance of prayer for a church. One of my favorite sort of quotes about prayer comes from a guy named Samuel Chadwick. And he says this, he says, one of the concerns of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. The devil fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. And, you know, sometimes I have people come sometimes and they'll say to me, you know, Pastor, I feel so bad because I can't serve like I used to. You know, all, all I really can do now is pray. But hear this clearly. Prayer is doing something. In fact, when it comes to ministry, prayer might be the most important something that we can do. As a church, we need to realize prayer is our most effective tool and probably the best use of our time. And if you could only do one thing for our church to serve, I would ask you to pray earnestly for us. Because if we want to see this church grow, if we want to see people saved, if we want to see lives changed by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, we need to pray. If we want to make disciples, if we want to see people grow to maturity in Christ, if we want people to find healing you know, from their past hurts and recovery from their past mistakes, we need to pray. We want this church to flow with life. If we want to be effective in reaching our community, if we're ever going to see a spiritual awakening in our church or in our community, even in our nation, chances are it's going to come about as a result of prayer. And a great church is a church that is earnest in prayer. And one of the things that Paul earnestly prays for this church was for their faith. Uh, he says, continuing in verse 10, as you pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And you know, when it comes to faith, it's number three on our list this morning, but in our lives, faith should be our priority number one. I mean, faith in Christ is where our churches and even where our lives as believers has to begin. It has to begin with that relationship, that belief in Jesus Christ. <coughs> Because being a Christian is about knowing Christ. It's about taking hold of our salvation and the promises of God that we get through him. It's about believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and it's about having a personal relationship with him. That's faith. And Paul says he wants to supply what's lacking in their faith. That's a weird, weird thing, because Paul is not implying here that there's something missing in their belief in Christ. He's not saying their faith in Christ was, was somehow defective or that you know, they, they needed something more in their faith in order to be saved. Now what Paul's saying to this church when he says what's lacking in their faith, he's saying that when it comes to their faith in Christ and knowing Christ, 
There's just, there's so much more that is available to them. And it's available to us as well. See, what's lacking in their faith is is maturity. What's lacking in their faith is is the opportunity to continue to grow in their relationship with Christ. The opportunity to grow in our faith and to know Christ more is something that's limitless. There's always room for growth. There's always room for more. And that's what Paul wanted for this church. Because that's what Paul wants for himself, too. You know, I often think of Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 14, as, as sort of Paul's theme verses for his entire life. Because they capture that, the deepest desire of his heart. And part of which Paul says is in own words, Philippians 3, beginning of verse 7, says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. You see, everything in Paul's life took a backseat to knowing Jesus more. Even in his own life, Paul would say, the only thing that is lacking in my faith is my desire to want more of Jesus. You said to Paul, Paul, is there anything you want more of? He said, yes, I want more Jesus. I want to know him more. I want to know him deeply. I want to experience everything that he has for my life. And as a church, we should be living with that same passion. And I have to tell you that this is is part of our faith we can't afford to take for granted. Uh, Because one of the great dangers that can sneak into every level of our faith, any area of our walk, is, is mediocrity. Um, too many Christians live like the little girl who fell out of bed one night. Um, little girl began to cry. Her mother rushed in and said, Honey, how come you fell out of bed? And the little girl replied, I think I stayed too close to the place I got in. And too many Christians are staying too place in Christianity to the place they got in. Too many Christians today are staying, you know, They're not maturing. They're not growing in their faith. Instead of going deeper, they're just staying where they are. They're spinning their tires. They're just going through the motions, going to church and stuff like that. But they just find themselves stuck in a rut when it comes to living in faith. But good churches help people get unstuck and get people growing. And great churches make it a practice to encourage people to increase in their faith and grow deeper and deeper still in their relationship with Christ. Growth in faith is something a great church does. But Paul also wants us to be growing in our relationship with others as well. As Paul continues his prayer in verses 11 and 12, he says to them, now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus and our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now, when you read this letter, you realize Paul loved this church. He loved these people, and he wanted, he, they were separated, but he wanted to be with them, and they wanted to be with him. They wanted to be together. They wanted that fellowship. They wanted that, just to be together as a people of God, to support each other. And they hated being apart. You know, we, we, I think we experienced that with COVID. When we couldn't get together, we just longed to be together, to be able to fellowship together and just to love one another. And I'll be honest, when I read these words here this week, 
Uh, one of my first responses was, <laughs> not love one another again. Oh, man, like, we get that all the time. As a pastor, you know, I like to preach through, you know, books verse by verse. And you, you would realize how many times it comes up. Every book, every chapter is like, I used my best sermon illustrations for love each other long ago. Like, I just want to, whenever it comes up, I'm just like, I preached on this like four weeks ago. Go listen to that. I don't want to do this again. But no, it's so important. And the reason the Bible tells us over and over and over again to love one another is because it's something that's too important for us to overlook. And yet we often do. Because especially here in North America, we, honestly, we are just not good at building community together. We're not, we're not really good at fellowship and just being open to sharing our lives with one another. I think we're too individualistic here, but it just doesn't come naturally to us. Someone actually called us, it's a great picture, but they once called us a back deck culture. And it's a pretty good image of who we are as a society. Because years ago, you know, people used to build a front porch on their house. And they would sit on that front porch and, you know, as they would wait for people to walk by their house so they could interact with people walking down the street so they could just talk to their neighbors. But today, we much prefer to build back decks. And we make sure that those back decks are surrounded by very high fences, especially if we have a hot tub. Um, but, you know, we, we, we sort of make, we literally are putting up walls so that we can keep to ourselves without having to deal with our neighbors. To the point where, in some cases, our houses and even our lives become these little fortresses that are impenetrable to the outside world. And it's not uncommon on many streets to only see your neighbors when they're driving to work, right? In the morning, the garage door goes up, they drive out in their car, they're gone all day. When they come home, the reverse happens. The door goes up, they drive them to the garage, the door goes down, and that's it. That's your neighbors. And all signs of life cease. And the reality is, you can move into a new house, or you can even attend a new church. But if you never take the initiative, you can be there for 20 years and still never get to really know the people next to you. The world can be a very lonely place, and it's often made lonelier by the choices we make. That's why we have to be intentional about fellowship. And as I I said, we talk about this a lot. But the lesson here is that great churches do what they can to build an authentic community. They do all they can to be a place where people genuinely feel loved, genuinely feel like they belong, genuinely feel like you know, they, they, they are known by the people around them. And that's hard work. And it's intentional. But it's so worth it. Love one another. And that leads us to the next thing that Paul talks about, about what makes us a great church. Reading in verse 13, he says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Great churches are also committed to holiness. As the kids say, this may be a spoiler alert, uh, but when it comes to holiness and and sort of holy living, Paul is going to devote a lot of the next chapter. So chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians Uh, He's going to talk a lot about holiness uh, in in those verses. So we'll be talking a lot more about this next time. But for now, just quickly, holiness. What do we mean when we say holiness or holy living? 
Um, I actually spent some time sort of thinking about that this week. And I kind of came to the conclusion that there are two parts of what I would call holy living. The first is, you know, probably what most people think of when they think about holiness. And that's sort of not living in sin. You know, there's a bunch of things in the Bible that God says he doesn't want his people to do this stuff. You know, things like drunkenness, gossip, sexual immorality, you know, lies and deception and pridefulness, all that that kind of stuff. Don't do that stuff. God says don't do it. So part of holiness is not doing those things. But there's another part of holy living that I think many people do overlook. And that's also doing the things that God tells us we should be doing. Um, kindness, loving one another, being generous, compassion, encouraging one another, worshiping together. Those things are also mark a holy life just as much as sort of the absence of sin does. In fact, this idea of holiness at its very root, that holiness really means something that's set apart. And both of those things set us apart from the world. Both of those things together define what a holy life looks like. So what Paul has in mind is that, when he talks about holiness, is that our lives would be different because we believe. That we would be living the way that God called us to live in every area of our lives. Not doing the things we know we shouldn't do and doing the things that we know we should. That's holiness. Because Christ transforms us. Because of Christ and our life in him, we live lives that are different, lives that are changed. I mean, changed lives is practically Jesus' specialty. And you see that all through the Gospels and all the lives that he made, Jesus changed people. There was this woman at the well in Samaria. Her, her life was a mess. She'd gone through five failed marriages and the man she was shacking up with now was not her husband. She lost all respectability among her neighbors. People avoided speaking to her. In the eyes of society, she was an outcast. Then one day, Jesus shows up and tells her about something called living water, and her life is changed forever. There's another man whose life was a mess, too. He was possessed by demons. He was so deranged that he did dwell in the tombstones outside of the city. He didn't wear clothes. He cut himself with sharp stones. No man could tame him. His family gave up on him, and then one day, Jesus stopped by for a moment, and the demons were cast out. His mind was restored, and his life was changed. There's another man named Zacchaeus who lived for money. But when he met Jesus, he began to give it all away. There's another man named Levi who was hated by the people because he was a tax collector, and Jesus turned him into one of his beloved disciples. There's a group of unlearned fishermen that Jesus stopped by and turned them into men who had changed the world. Even the Apostle Paul, who's writing these words, his life was transformed by Christ. At one time, Paul's one desire in life was to wipe out Christians. It didn't matter to him whether they were men, women, adults, or children. He wanted them all bound with ropes and chains and taken as prisoners to Jerusalem. But then he met Jesus. And it was Paul who became a servant of Christ. You see, when people meet Jesus, lives changed. And that's what I want you to think about when, when you think about holiness. It's not just about following a bunch of rules. It's not just about some do's and some don'ts. It's about a changed life. And a great church is a church full of people who have been transformed and are living holy lives 
in Christ Jesus. Which brings us to the final thing that Paul prays for, for this church. And in a word, it's hope. He says, sort of just kind of sneaks it in the last part of verse 13 when he talks about being blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. As believers, we live with the hope not just of eternal life, but also we live with the hope of Jesus' return. And living with hope is something, again, that also sets us apart from the world around us. Because the world right now offers people very little, you know, little basis for hope, hope in anything. The messages that we receive over and over again are, you know, we evolved from monkeys and we're just worm food when we die. Boy, that's something. <laughs> like, which is means the, the world around us really typically, it just lives for the present. Because they don't have anything more than that. So you hear slowly, carpe diem, seize the day, live for the moment. And they live like that because they think today is all that there is. There's nothing more beyond the here and now. And that's hopeless. And that hopelessness affects people, whether they admit it to themselves or not. And one person put it like this. He says, a person without hope is truly miserable. Their hearts ache. Their mind is frantic with self-doubt, anger, and apathy. Their emotions are a wreck. When you are hopeless, nothing looks good. And there seems to be no way out. And when you look at the world around us, you see that. There is a level of despair. And there's a level of discouragement. And there's a level of sort of meaninglessness out there that's tragic. But what a difference for Christians. You know, unlike the world around us, we have a reason to look forward to the future. Made clear by Paul and his reminders that Jesus is coming back. Paul points the church to the blessed hope of Christ's return. And that's a simple thought, but it, has, it makes a profound difference. Because not only do we as believers have something to look forward to, but we can also be living with that hope. Even now, that hope is ours to be taking hold of. And it's not just something we, we have occasionally. It's not just something we talk about on Sundays. It's not just something we bring up at funerals. Every day, every moment of our lives is a moment when we should be touched, when we should be living with the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And that hope should inspire us. And it should encourage us. It should give us something to be living for. Something to look forward to for eternity. Something, I mean, hope, it should give us goosebumps when we think about it. It's just like, it's the tingles. I love the poem that talks about Jesus. It says, the first time he came, he came veiled in the form of a child. The next time he will come, he will be unveiled, and it will be abundantly and immediately clear to all the world who he really is. The first time he came, a single star marked his arrival. The next time he comes, the whole heavens will roll up like a scroll. The first time he came, there was no room for him at the inn. The next time he comes, the whole world will not be able to contain his glory. The first time he came, only a few attended his arrival. The next time he comes, every knee shall bow and every eye shall see him. The first time he came as a baby... But soon and very soon, he shall return as the sovereign king and Lord. And that's such a powerful reminder to us. 
that one day everything will change. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. One day God will make everything that is wrong with this world right. And he'll wipe away every tear. He will heal every hurt. He will comfort every fear. He will restore any brokenness and sorrow and sadness will be a distant memory. One day Jesus will establish his kingdom and we will be with the Lord and he will be with us and we will be, you know, he will be our God and we will be his people and we'll be with him forever. Because one day Jesus is coming back. And living with that hope and remembering that hope and holding on to that hope is essential for us as a church. And really, there, there you sort of have it. This is Paul's prayer for this church. A prayer that he wants to see be a great church. Because a great church is a church that is full of joy and thankfulness for all that God has done. A great church is a church of earnest prayer. A great church is a church full of people who are growing in their faith and desiring to know Christ deeper. A great church is a church of a community and that has fellowship and love for one another. A great church is a church of holiness where the people are living lives that are changed by Jesus Christ. And a great church is a church of hope because we know we have a future uh, that we are, we are looking forward to. And as we close, I really only have one application for you this morning. And it's this. I would encourage you to just be praying for our church. Just as Paul did, pray earnestly, pray daily. Make a commitment to keep this church before the Lord when you're on your knees. Pray for all that Paul talks about here, that that would be ours as a church. That would, that, that would define us. And pray believing that God will do a work here among us. That God will answer our prayer and he will help us to be the church that he desires us to be. Because for every believer in every church, true greatness comes when we kneel before the Lord and pray. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord, we are a great church because we serve a great God. And we are your people and you are our Lord. And we are called by your name. We are saved by your grace. And we are living. We're taking hold of that abundant life, that kingdom living that you offer us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, church is really just the people of God doing life together. That we would encourage each other. That we would be supporting each other. That we would be growing together and fellowshipping together and worshiping together and praying together and just, again, doing life together as the people of God. And I would pray that for our church. I would pray that we would take hold of all the things that Paul's praying for the Thessalonian church, you know, for the joy, for the faith, for the love, for the holiness, for the hope. Those are things that should define us as your people. Things that are already ours in Christ Jesus that we just simply have to take hold of. And Lord, as we just continue to pray uh, for our church, we continue to pray that you would do that work both in our lives as believers individually and that, Lord, you would make this, these hallmarks of our church as a whole. That, Lord, we would truly would be your people, called by your name, living out this truth together as the people of God. Lord, make us a great church. In Jesus' name, amen.